Ending for our scripture lesson, we're hearing a message today from the book of Psalms, Psalm 6, the whole psalm, verses 1 through 10. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. And Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I I drench my couch with my weeping. My eyes waste away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Good morning. Psalm 6 is sometimes referred to uh, as a penitential psalm. That was the other thing I meant to say. I know y'all are used to outlines, and I'm, I hope it's not too distracting that you don't have uh, that in front of you this morning. I'll try to keep things clear. A penitential psalm, uh, which Sinclair Ferguson has, I think, rightly said, is somewhat of a, of a wrong title for, for these sets of psalms. Something more like a sorrowful psalm. Uh, would be better. Uh, But these are psalms uh, that are regularly called in psalms literature simply lament psalms. And it may surprise you or not to know that a vast majority of our 150 psalms are psalms of lament. Doesn't necessarily play well in our day and age uh, to think about grief, to spend time in grief, to admit our sorrows and our struggles, uh, especially within the Christian world, which often asks us to either overtly or uh, by its own practices asks us to plaster a smile on our face, to be happy, and to show to the world that everything is well. But biblical Christianity is certainly a faith that weeps, that knows how to express sorrow. That, after all, is what lament is about. Lament is sorrow expressed bodily, physically, deeply. And so many of the psalms, especially in the first half of the Psalter, are psalms of lament. And this is one such psalm, Psalm 6, where summarily uh, we learn the lesson that the Lord hears His Son. The Lord hears His Son. The psalm moves really in two, or the sermon will move in two simple uh, movements. Uh, An explanation of the psalm, Uh, And then, secondly, its use, how we may use it ourselves. So first, in terms of the explanation, um, I just want to give you, I guess, what I'll call just a bit of a guided reading. Uh, Psalms of Lament, if you've never studied them, uh, really include three essential elements. 
variously called, but I like the pattern of C's because who doesn't like alliteration, right? Uh, It helps us remember things. The patterns of a lament psalm are complaint, call, and confidence. Or to put it just really simply, it's the psalmist saying, Lord, it hurts. Lord, please help. And then, Lord, you've heard. Now, the psalms don't fall out in these perfect patterns, this perfect pattern necessarily, but Psalm 13 is one such that you could look at later and see a perfect six-verse layout. The first two verses given to complaint, How long, O Lord? The second two given to call, expressing the difficulties and asking the Lord to help. And then finally, two verses of confidence that the Lord has heard. So you could, you could look at, at Psalm 13 later for the basic pattern. Here in our psalm, it's just a bit more jumbled than that. Uh, but all three elements are there. Here the complaint comes throughout. You can see it in that David says, and he is the author of the psalm, as is listed above in the title, David asks the Lord not to rebuke him, but notice how he says, in your anger, verse 1, in your wrath. Notice in verse 2 that David says, I am languishing. My bones are troubled. Verse 3, my soul is greatly troubled. And then you really see the substance of his complaint stated in verses 6 and 7. Notice them again. He says, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. So you should notice in these words that the pain, the agony, the frustration that David is feeling is not surface level. That's what he means when he speaks of his bones being troubled. He feels the weight of his difficulties in the very core of his being. David is overwhelmed with physical, seemingly, and spiritual sorrow. So the complaint is all throughout here. And and the reality is, brothers and sisters, that we often feel this way ourselves, sometimes more, sometimes less. It's possible that you haven't recently experienced true deep lament, like we do perhaps when we lose a close loved one or we're diagnosed with some illness that we weren't expecting. Those are moments of particular grief. But the reality is that even those of us that are not struggling with those types of griefs are often awake at night with anxieties worrying us. Though we as a culture like to sort of hold grief or lament at arm's length, think funeral celebrations rather than funeral services, the statistics show that we are riddled with depression, that we are overwhelmed with grief. That's why we as Americans have actually referred to our place here on earth as Prozac Nation. The fact is that we struggle 
We find life hard. And these psalms welcome us into a posture of expressing our complaints and our griefs before the Lord. And before I move on to the call language, I'll just say the reality is that we are all, most of us I should say, are not very good at grieving. And so how gracious the Lord has been to give us psalm after psalm, prayer after prayer, teaching us how to express ourselves in sorrow and in grief and broken bodies and broken spirits. And so we see that in David's pattern here, a complaint scattered throughout the psalm. But notice the second mark of a lament psalm is a call. See, the psalmist doesn't just sit in agony. His eyes are upward. He calls out to the Lord. Verse 1 again. O Lord, rebuke me not. And notice that probably a better translation here would actually be stop rebuking me. The sense of the psalm is that David at least worries, if not being convinced, that he's somehow under God's discipline. Stop rebuking me. Don't discipline me. Be gracious. Heal me. Turn, verse 4, O Lord, and deliver Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. So those are the petitions. Those are the petitions. Now it's helpful to know, especially when we're reading a psalm from David, that the immediate context or backdrop of these psalms is the Davidic covenant. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Though we can read these psalms and see in them, we might say, Brother David, somebody who can encourage us in prayer, we're also more, more immediately, we might say, looking at Father David. In the sense that, as David offers these prayers to the Lord and asks for deliverance, he's asking in terms of the Davidic covenant. Where you might remember that it was stated... David had offered to build the temple. The Lord said, no, you won't build the temple, but I'll build a house for your name. And in the midst of that, he says, if you and your sons are faithful to me, I will bless you. But when you sin, I will discipline you. And so there was this unique context for David that he, as the small M Messiah, the anointed one, was called to faithfulness before the Lord. And so the Lord had told him that he would discipline him and his sons if they were unfaithful to him. And so you can see that in the backdrop here, right? That David is worried, you might say. He's at least suspicious that perhaps the grief that he's experiencing, the bodily brokenness that he's enduring, has something to do with his own unfaithfulness as the Lord's anointed. And it's from that context that he calls out, Stop, Lord, rebuking me. Rescue me from death. Now notice in that as well, there are so many little things to point out. I hope it's not distracting. But notice in that that as David prays for deliverance, even from death, he doesn't shy away from God's agency. What do I mean by that? I mean by that that we often, though we don't think so ourselves, we're often 
aware of the argument that that God wouldn't do something like that. God wouldn't hurt us. God wouldn't do something mean. God wouldn't discipline us. Remember back when there was the tsunami that overwhelmed Indonesia years back, John Piper preached a sermon in response to what had happened there based off of the text of the Tower of Siloam where the tower falls and the men that uh, tell Jesus about that tower's destruction say, surely those men must have been sinners. Surely those people in Indonesia, the sex trade's big there. That's probably what it was about. And Piper provoking many to to frustration, said, well, the reality is that God did send a tsunami to Indonesia, where so many Christian preachers were saying, you know, these are just events. These things happen. We live in a chaotic universe, but God is a God of kindness, not a God of wrath, and He doesn't do those sorts of things. Have you ever heard an argument like that? I'm sure you have. But David doesn't shy from the reality that the struggle that he's enduring, the pain that is afflicting him, is from the hand of God. When he says it hurts, he looks up. And this is helpful. Because how else, when else would we ask for deliverance if we didn't believe that God didn't just know about it or understood it, but is actually somehow involved in it, even permitting it, you might say, or even sending it. Bruce Waltke says of this psalm, then reflecting on the fact that David calls out to the Lord for help, that the psalm at, at, at one level is simply teaching us one thing, that we are to move towards God in prayer in our time of distress. He says the psalm teaches that God is moved to stop disciplining His erring saints by a fervent, not stoical, and a well-argued, not a hasty brain, petition. What's he saying? He's saying, look how carefully David lays out his petition to the Lord, his call. Rebuke me not. Don't discipline me. Be gracious. And though we don't have time to go too far much deeper in terms of the call, you might have noticed that David calls on the Lord to deliver him based upon his covenant promises. Look at verse 4 again. He says, Turn, O Lord, deliver my life, save me for the sake of your steadfast love. This is the chesed love of God. This is the term for love that is tied uniquely to the covenant promises. This isn't simply just love as we talk about it. This is faithful love, as many have translated it here. Steadfast love. The love that is an expression of the promises that God has made to His people. And so in a sense, David says, deliver me because you've promised that you care for me. You've promised that you watch me. You've promised that you're with me, that you hold me, that you know me, that you love me. So David calls on the basis of those covenant promises. And so we learn from this that we too should call to God in our time of need. 
but not call randomly based upon his covenant promises. The human role, again, Waltke says, is to trust God alone as well as to ask. To ask him. So the complaint section, the call section, and then finally the confidence. In this psalm, it's, it's actually quite clear, the confidence section. It's verses 8 through 10. So the way that the confidence section works in a psalm of lament is that it expresses, the psalmist expresses his confidence that the Lord has heard him. He says that he will sing to the Lord or that he is singing to the Lord often, and this should be striking to you, often in the confidence section, it sounds as if he already has the answer to prayer. But there's a different type of psalm that does that. It's called the psalm of thanksgiving. The psalm of thanksgiving sounds like a lament at first, but then finishes with a statement of praise because the Lord has answered the prayer. The lament comes before the song of thanksgiving. There's no deliverance yet. And I'm telling you this because often it sounds as if the deliverance has come. Because the psalmist expresses such confidence that the Lord will hear him or that he has heard him. That's what we see here. Look at this again in verses 8 through 10. He's so confident, David is, that he actually turns to the ones that are afflicting him and he says, Depart from me, you workers of evil. David's just said he's drowning on his bed in tears. And yet now he says, Depart from me. The Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. So there he sits in agony or rather lays upon his bed in agony, confident that God has heard him. Verse 9, The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. You may not have noticed that the Lord's covenant name is sprinkled throughout that section. I hope you know that when you read the Old Testament and that you have the Lord in all caps, that that is the name I am, Yahweh. That's critical that you know that. This is the name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush, Yahweh. I am. So it's his covenant name. And so David says, the Lord has heard me. He's confident. It says, in connection with his threefold repetition of I am, God's covenant-keeping name, the Holy Spirit in David reawakens his voice of faith. Those again are the words of Bruce Waltke. Striking to me. Think about the moment with me. David's on his bed, overwhelmed with grief, as Probably you have been before. In the midst of that, the Holy Spirit reminds David of God's Word, of God's promises, and awakens in him, Waltke says, the voice of faith through the hearing of the Word. And David's response is confidence because he knows the Lord has heard him. And so those are the movements of the text. 
It finishes with David stating his confidence before deliverance by addressing those who seek his downfall and seek the loss of his throne through his death. Complaint, call, confidence. The Lord hears his son, David. Now, for us to use this psalm for ourselves, we actually need to sort of work through a little bit of a, of a filter, right? We are not at first David. We're not David the anointed. But our Lord Jesus is David's Lord. And we are sons through him. See, that's the simple transition. We have to spell it out a little bit more than that. But it's, we are not David, so how can I pray this prayer? Our Lord Jesus is David's Lord, and by faith in Him, we are sons. And so again, the simple text, or meaning of this text is that the Lord hears His Son. We first think David in the original context, then in our context, we think the Lord Jesus Christ, and because of Him, through faith in Him, we think of ourselves, we pick up the psalm and we pray it. Does that make sense? But let me help you a little bit more with the transition uh, to Christ. This psalm was actually quoted by our Lord Jesus. Did you know that? Luke tells us in his Gospel, in chapter 13, verse 17, that one time there were some people, as Jesus was traveling, who came to him and said, Lord, isn't it true that so few will be saved? And Jesus turned and told them about the narrow door. He said, Strive to enter by the narrow door. Many seek it, but few will find it. And then he quotes this psalm and he says that in that day, the Lord will say to those who haven't entered through the door, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. That is a direct quote of this psalm. And so, I hope this isn't too heady for you here this morning, but what's happening there then is that Jesus is, as the Messiah, not the small M Messiah now, but the capital M Messiah, the anointed one, taking the words of this psalm and quoting them to his enemies. We might say as Jesus is walking along in the bed of his lament, the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, challenged from outside as to his authority, he shows plainly that he is David's Lord, not just his son, that he is the true Messiah. And so in saying that then, he is stating that he is the one that the Lord Hears. Do you get that? So Jesus is the one that the Lord hears. That's what the Hebrews writer says, right? He cried out and he was heard. You might shrug and go, yeah, big deal. Jesus' prayers were answered. You should never do anything like that. I'm saying it because I think that sometimes. It doesn't seem like that big of a statement. Are we to be overwhelmed with Jesus' Messiahship simply because it says Hebrews in Hebrews that He was heard? Absolutely. 
Because only a righteous man can be heard. Only the anointed one can be heard. Only God's Son can be heard. So David was heard, and Jesus is heard. And then that helps us make the final turn to the reality that, brothers and sisters, because we are sons of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, we too are heard. Now ladies, I'm saying sons on purpose. Not to exclude you, because you're actually included. Did you know you were a son of God? Yeah, I know you're children of God. But it's more important to point out that you're sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Because the son is the heir. And in Christ Jesus, the true son, we are all heirs through Christ. And so when I say the Lord hears his son, I mean that he hears His people because of Jesus. And so He hears our prayers. That's the final turn. So then we come back, and I know we're already getting towards the hour here, but then how do we use it having gone this far? And this is where we come back to the three C's. So as sons of God, we pray this prayer in Jesus' name, in the broad sense, as the children of God, and we offer our complaints to the Lord. In our affliction, in our struggles in this life, we lay them out before the Lord. He hears us, and He wants to hear the voices of His people crying out in pain. If you're anything like me, you've taken too far too long in life to really take it seriously. I remember going through a period of significant financial trial after seminary. Not because of seminary. I actually managed to come out debt-free. And somehow that surprised me, and then I went into debt. <laughs> and on the other side of that, I couldn't figure out how to get out. And I worked at it, and I thought about it, and I asked advice. And the answers were depressing. They were depressing, because it was going to take a long time, and it was my own foolishness that had gotten me there. But I remember laying on my bed at night, one night, and having the revelationary thought that I should just ask the Lord for help. And the reality is that's what we do. We take far too long to ask the Lord's help. We don't cry out to Him in our grief. We start making plans. And the Psalms of Lament say, Brothers, sisters, cry out to Him in your grief. And I tell you the end of the story to encourage you, not because it always works the same way, but in that case, in that situation, the answer to my prayer was that my brother-in-law helped me out, not by paying off my debts, but giving me an opportunity to do it without interest. And we slowly worked our way out from underneath that debt over a series of years that would have been a lot longer than that. The Lord heard my cries, But He waits 
for us to cry. He wants us to call. This is how we learn faith. This is how we learn that He is dependable. Not by acknowledging it merely confessionally, but by coming after Him in prayer, seeking His help. And so that's how we learn. That's how we use this prayer. We hear its words of complaint and it offers us a liturgy of complaint, you might say. We can take the words that David uses because most of us wouldn't be forthright enough in our complaint. And it gives us a pattern of complaint. And then it gives us the pattern to not sit merely in our complaint, but to call and ask for help. And then not to just sit there, again, waiting, but already beginning, even in our frustration and grief, to begin to speak words of confidence. Lord, I know You hear me. And so the songs that we sing, as it were, in those nights of desperation and difficulty ought to finish with songs of confidence, like we heard played this morning. It is well. Even when we're sitting there in our grief still, waiting for the answer, we're singing with eyes of faith, it is well with my soul. And that's the point, right? Those are the three movements of the psalm. And I finish by simply quoting back to you what I did at the beginning from Bruce Waltke. What does the psalm teach us? The psalm teaches us that God is moved. God our Father through Jesus Christ is moved to, to help us or to stop disciplining His erring saint. How? By a fervent, not stoical, a well-argued, not a hasty brain, petition, reliant upon His covenant promises, pointing to Jesus and asking God to help. And again then, the human role is to trust God alone as well as to ask. And so the Psalms of Lament give us the words to use as we ask. And we can be confident that we are heard because we are in Christ. And so we are sons because of Him. Let's pray together. Our Father, You are so kind to us that You encourage us and encourage us again and encourage us again to pray, to seek You. And Lord, we confess that we are slow, we are arrogant, we are presumptuous, we are proud, we are first Our first move is to to use our own wisdom and our own strength. And we thank you that even in that, you're so kind to us, patient with us. And Lord, we do pray that you would help us to have a greater awareness of our need to rely upon you. That that kind of posture would color our days, color our prayers. Lord, teach us to lament, take seriously our own struggles, to offer them up before you and to ask for deliverance with full confidence that you will hear us and act on our behalf. And Lord, we acknowledge as I close that 
All of this comes only through your Son, the true Son, the Messiah, our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we come in His name, as always. Amen.